If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is the, I believe, well, I'll talk about it at great length, at greater length in just a moment. I think this is the first mention of deacons in our Bibles, um, but we have here the story of the church. It's, it's birth and growth. The birth comes earlier at the day of Pentecost, but this seems to be the exponential growth that they began seeing. And then with that, they saw this great need for those who would serve in, in some of the more practical and behind-the-scene ways. So read with me verses 1 through 7. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, or the Greek Christians, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. In a good way, not in a bad way. Verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So we get to see a picture of the first century, the early church's need for men to help in these practical ways. My grandfather was a deacon at my home church. Honestly, for the longest time, I really had no idea what that even meant. (laughs) I saw him help serve the Lord's Supper several times a year. I can vividly remember watching he and his good friend Don carefully fold the cloth in front of the table, readying the table for the worshipers to partake in the meal. And they did it so reverently. I can remember as a kid thinking that it was pretty close to like a flag-folding ceremony. It was somber and serious. I remember him telling me stories about how before you could buy those pre-made wafers, how the deacons and their wives used to gather on Saturday evening to actually bake the unleavened bread. And I remember him saying, those were good times. Good times. I saw him in the back room, too. We were raised in a free old Baptist church, so feet washing was integral to the Lord's Supper. Although we really, our family didn't really stay until I was older, and Gramps had actually retired from serving as a deacon. But even then, even as a child, I I remember peeking in one time and seeing him, one of the ones in the back room, pouring the water, handing out the towels, emptying the buckets, and praying with other men. I don't really remember having to wait for him late at night after a service like some of our deacons' families have to do from time to time, but I'm sure that there were some late-night meetings where he had to help with benevolence and many other things. What I really remember is that once a week, I think on Thursday, although I, I can't say for sure, but I know consistently once a week, he and his other good friend, Dinks, would meet together and they'd go visiting They'd meet at his house, and they'd leave from there in the same car, and they'd go visit. He, he was retired, so they could do it in the morning. They, the two visited sick and shut-ins. 
They dropped off welcome cards to the new visitors that might have attended that Sunday. And they made hospital visits, and they checked on those who weren't feeling well. Now, here's the thing. I'm sure, I'm positive that I heard sermons on Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3. My pastors were too grounded in God's Word for them to skip over such major portions of Scripture about deacons. But I'll be honest with you, I don't remember any of those sermons that were preached to me. My picture of what a deacon was all the way up until I got into Bible college and really began to study ecclesiology and the church leadership structures, all of that came from watching a faithful man serve his local church consistently, more often than not, behind the scenes. And I am so grateful for that. Obviously, I'm biased, and obviously, he wasn't perfect. But it really is an amazing experience to see Christianity lived out right in front of your eyes, and then when you're older, read a passage of Scripture that says, oh, that's why he did what he did. I'm so thankful for that faithful living and teaching of God's Word right in front of me. And I'm grateful that many of our own kids here at New Hope will be able to have similar testimonies as me. They get to see what a deacon is like, not by what we teach about them, but how they observe them act, interact, and react in our congregation. And hopefully we'll teach them too, but I think you understand that oftentimes what is caught is so much more important than what is taught. So what is a deacon? This, this might sound base level, church 101, super simplistic to you, but let's, let's talk about this question. What is a deacon? Honestly, there is a lot of discussion in the church, in the modern church today, about what a deacon is. I believe that the necessity of deacons first arrives in Acts chapter 6, which we've already read. I've read after some who don't believe that this passage of Scripture in Acts 6 deals particularly with deacons in this role. I understand their points. I just think they're wrong. <laughs> I think that it's too close to what a deacon will later do in 1 Timothy 3 and in Philippians 1. Also, there seems to be a hint in this passage to the actual title of deacon. It's the Greek word diakonos. When when the apostles say it is not good for us to leave prayer and study of God's word to wait tables, it's wait diakonos, serve tables. So first and foremost, whenever you hear the word deacon, all we are saying is diakonos, we are talking servants, waiters, but it means more than just may I take your order kind of thing. And so let's set, let's set the stage a little. I've already read Acts chapter 6, but let me kind of back up and, and get us into the story. The early church is growing rapidly, quicker than they can keep up with. It's growing by leaps and bounds. In fact, if you were to trace the origins of the church in Scripture, you'd find that what began as a mere handful of believers in the upper room days after the resurrection quickly morphed into 500 standing on a hillside watching Jesus ascend into heaven at the ascension, but it only grew from there. 3,000 
came to Jesus and were baptized on the day of Pentecost. It was only 10 days after the ascension. And after that, Acts chapter 2 closes out the whole event by saying, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So on the low end of the spectrum, we are already looking at several thousand of Christians who are meeting in the public squares on Sundays to all congregate together and hear the word preached, celebrate the the resurrection, and they're also meeting daily in each other's homes throughout the week. And if you skip down to Acts chapter 6, we find in verse 1, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Get that. We have left addition language behind, added to the church daily. We are now into multiplication language. The church has grown exponentially, and with that, they're experiencing growing pains. It hurts to grow, especially when you grow quickly as the early church was. And so there arose this complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. If you read through the early portion of the book of Acts, you'll find that there's this common phrase that keeps popping up a handful of times. It says that they had all things in common. The church practiced what I think could be best described as communalism. Don't don't hear communism. (laughs) Communalism. Out of love for each other, not coerced or even commanded by anyone. Really, we don't even have a suggestion of it in Scripture to do this. Many in the church sold their possessions and they gave the money to the church so that those who were poor or widowed or orphaned or enslaved wouldn't starve. They had all things in common. And this is what I believe the verse, that verse 1 is talking about when it says the daily distribution. This is the daily distribution of food that people would come to the church as it were although we know we're not talking about steeples and and buildings yet, but they would come to a central location for the distribution of food. And essentially, this problem arises where the Greek-born Christians, they felt as though the Jewish-born Christians were getting special attention. And we can only assume that this is based upon issues of ethnicity, but also there's probably a language gap here in the early church. So that probably doesn't help matters much. We don't know if there is an actual schism or not, but how many of you know that if there's a perceived issue, there's an issue? (laughs) And that's what's happening here. It's, It's possible that it wasn't really even happening, but nonetheless, the 12 apostles, they convene and they decide to delegate this very practical issue of putting men in charge of the daily distribution. Verse 2, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This is the first church business meeting in God's Word. The first members meeting in the Bible. I highly doubt that it went in accordance to Robert's rules of order. Thank God for that. But it was done 
decently and in order. At the end of the meeting, the whole congregation, thousands, just let that sink in, the whole congregation, thousands, agreed on what the apostles tasked them with. It was unanimous. We will do what you have said. We will choose out from among us seven men of good report, reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wise. We will do this. Look, it's a miracle when any church can get a unanimous vote on anything for thousands of people who are meeting together because there's an issue, because they're at odds, for them to all be in agreement, it truly is a work of God. Even more a miracle, it seems as though the whole congregation isn't just unanimous on how they should take this problem in and choose out seven men. They're also unanimous on who the seven men ought to be, who they ought to serve in this position. Verse 5 says, The saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. If I mispronounced any of those names or said them differently than what I already read, too bad. I have no idea how to pronounce their names. I just didn't read Timon and Pumbaa in this at all. But these seven men, these seven, they're chosen. Each was deemed by the congregation to have a good reputation. That means no glaring sin jumped to mind when you thought of them. There wasn't, oh, that guy's a gossiper. That guy drinks a little too much. None of that even came to mind. Good reputation. Second qualification here in this passage is full of the Holy Spirit. I think that means that we're talking about that God is evidently working in their lives. You get to see it right in front of you. And, and lastly, wise. They're able to handle the business side of the church. If I can kind of put Corey's spin on this passage, which is always dangerous to do, the picture here is that they are holy, humble, and able. Holy, humble, and able. That's what these first qualifications are. And these seven, they jump to the task. Now this is a little bit of the assumption here, but I think it holds water. All seven men that are listed here, they have Greek names. Which that's interesting because, again, the schism was between the Greek-born Christians and the Jewish-born Christians. So here's the issue. Hey, the Greek widows are being overlooked. The solution then seems to come, the unanimous solution is seven Greek men are appointed. That's amazing. Obviously, the Jewish Christians felt their sliding and, and they wanted to make it right. That they, they gave up responsibility and leadership status to these other men who were not born of the same nationality. But they saw the problem and they said, yes, we will seek out. They were not tasked with seeking out Greek men. But they said in order to, to help our brothers, our sisters, especially the widowed, we will make these men our seven deacons. These best fulfill these requirements, and they just so happen to be Greek themselves. So the church brings them in verse 6 before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, which is a, a sign, it's a showing of approval. It, it's the passing on of the faith. 
if we can see it in that way. Uh, don't read too high church into this as if you're transferring power to this individual. You are merely saying that he is one whom we deem worthy. He holds to the qualifications here. So it's this public display of this prayer. At verse 7, hear the reaction that comes after all this happens. The word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I don't know about you, but I've always read that last phrase that a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I always kind of read that as like, that's a strange place to just poke that in there. What does that have anything to do with the appointing of deacons? And maybe I'm out in left field But I think that that last part shows the signs that the priests were impressed with the church's unity. If you read the Old Testament, cooperation and unity, those are not strengths of the Jewish people. All throughout the Exodus account, you have bickering and complaining and and calling into question one's leadership. But here, all of that seems to kind of drift away, and they are able to unify around the cross of Christ, Him crucified and risen. Anyone, really, not just the Jews, would have an issue with this cooperation and unity. And so this just sticks out to the priests, and I believe it was a testimony to them that they can unify and get together and do something. So, what is a deacon? haven't really answered that question yet, have I? Are they just table waiters? Do they just help pass out the food to the hungry and the church? Well, that's a huge part of what they are tasked to do. It is central to their calling to help feed the practicality behind that. But inside of that, there comes a lot of decisions. There comes financial decisions. There's relationship building. There's the ability to meet both physical and spiritual needs here. Now, I'd say that deacons are a lot more than men who just pass out the food. Don't get the picture of him, uh, of the deacons here, just, you know, slopping the pigs kind of thing. They don't just, you know, pull up to a people who are hungry and dump the truck of food on them and say, peace out, we're gone. No, these are people who live amongst the people. They, they feel the needs because they are there with the people. They know how to minister physically and spiritually. The very fact that they are called to be wise and filled with the Holy Spirit and reputable, it means that there is a level of discernment in this position. This isn't just, may I take your order. By the way, I do think that this is a position that, is, that ought to be installed in the church. This doesn't just seem to be a picture of, hey, we need a few guys to help pass out some food a couple of days a week. Any volunteers? No, this seems to be an actual position appointed, approved, and prayed over by the church. Why? Because the distribution of food and the qualities needed to handle the church's finances equitably And as good stewards, really is just the beginning of what a deacon does. I mean, why else, if you've still got your Bible open to uh, Acts chapter 6, why else does the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 in the book of Acts 
deal with Stephen's ability to preach, one of the deacons, to preach, to teach, obviously has the gift of evangelism. He was a deacon who was gifted in these areas, and so he leaned into them. We are not only relegating these men to serving in food-type capacities. There are many other things that must be done by them. As a matter of fact, by the time that Paul writes his letter to the Philippian church a few decades later, I think you'll see that the office of deacon seems to have been officially recognized as a leadership position within the church. The book of Philippians is essentially, a book is a kind of a big word for it because it's, it's more of a letter. It is essentially a thank you letter to where Paul writes an official, formal thank you letter to the church in Philippi, thanking them, acknowledging their gift to him when he was in financial and physical danger. And so all the book of Philippians, it has very little directives and teaching involved with it. It is essentially an encouraging thank you note. But he opens this whole official and formal letter to the church in Philippi by saying in verse 1 of Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops or the elders or the pastors, however you'd like to uh, read that, and deacons. These are the leadership of the local church there in Philippi. The elders are the pastors, the bishops, again, don't call me bishop, and the deacons. Additionally, as the church grows and spreads out into different cultures, it seems as though the Lord wants to further define those earlier qualifications that the apostles had set up in the book of Acts. By 1 Timothy, which is chronologically comes right on the heels of Paul writing to the, his letter to the Philippians, Paul, un, obviously under the inspiration of the direction of the Holy Spirit, he fleshes out those three earlier qualifications. Reputation, filled with the Holy Spirit, wise, and in 1 Timothy 3, Paul expands them to eight qualifications. Now look, I, I do not read 1 Timothy 3 as a separate listing of qualifications, as if we've got we to gotta reformat this and make this better. I think rather this is commentary on the three qualifications. This is kind of the expanded version. So when we say they ought to be people of good reputation and filled with the Holy Spirit and wise, these eight qualifications inform what we mean by those three. The only difference that we've already read in 1 Timothy 3 is the fact that Paul even delves in a bit more into the deacon's home life. He talks about the wife's qualifications. He talks about the deacon's ability to care for and lead his own children. Those are the ones where there's really an expansion here. It goes a little bit past good reputation, wise, filled with the Holy Spirit. So he writes in 1 Timothy 3, 8, that which we began the whole service with, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, 
But let those also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Welcome to living your life in a fishbowl. Deacons lead lives of sobriety, both in how they talk and what they take in, shunning too much wine. They speak honestly, without thought to personal gain. They're not double-tongued. They don't say one thing to one person and then another thing to another person based upon the situation trying to play each other off the other. They don't do that. They're not in it for personal gain. They live with a pure conscience, understanding that much of the Christian faith is a beautiful mystery as to how God redeems sinners and makes them his. By the way, whenever Paul calls something a mystery, we really ought to sit up and pay attention. Here is one of the most learned men of his day under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there are multiple times, I believe four in the New Testament, when Paul just says, it's a mystery. <laughs> He's essentially saying, deacons never get over the fact that I once was lost and now I'm found. It's a great mystery. They're blameless, which means they've invited the church to put them under the microscope for testing. That's uncomfortable. They're to juggle the affairs of the church, their, their marriage, their parenting, all above reproach, not giving anyone a reason to criticize them reasonably. People are always going to criticize, but without an actual reason for it. Their wives are similar in every regard with special attention to their conversations. Paul kind of pinpoints that in verse 11, that they ought to be particularly careful about how they speak and what they speak. And we ought to read those qualifications off regularly. Yes, as a matter of accountability, that's good and right. But more so than that, as a reminder for us in this church to pray for these men and their families. Here's the thing. Those qualifications, verses 8 through 13, those things will not happen passively or without a purpose. They must, if someone, anyone, is going to attain the qualifications laid out here in verses 8 through 13, if anyone is going to attain that, that is going to come Daily, intentionally dying to self, living for Christ. It doesn't happen by accident. And so you ought to pray for them. My word. We ought to all be able to memorize the names of our deacons, their wives, and their children, and dare say, their grandchildren. 
if they truly are leadership in the church, and I'll end by thinking, by pointing to a point I think they are. If the leaders are attacked and the leaders fall, the people hurt. So we ought to pray for our deacons at very least selfishly so that we don't come under a greater condemnation under their leadership. But these qualifications, they must be attended to intentionally daily. Now there's a lot of debate in the church proper today about what are the responsibilities of the deacon. You say, Corey, you have asked the question, what's a deacon five times? You have yet to answer the question. There's a lot of debate what the responsibilities of a deacon are. Opinions are broad. I think I can safely say that they range anywhere in some churches from having designated deacons of parking. I know churches that have that, like that is their purview. This deacon's job is the parking lot. And all of that comes with that. All the way over to the other side of the pendulum where you have the sole burden of responsibility in leading a specific local church. They call the shots. They're, they're the ones who make the budget. They, they employ the pastor. They, you have pendulum swings on both sides where you kind of have them in the, involved in the minutia of the ministry over here to where they are, they are the leaders. I think New Hope falls somewhere pretty much in the middle of that gaping pendulum swing. Our men serve. They minister to many benevolent needs based upon the situation. It is fairly often that you will see them meeting with people in our library, in our conference room, trying to know how we can best serve this person and their family's needs. So they serve and they lead. They're tasked in a large part with the finances and the spiritual maturity of the church. Many of them serve as teachers in some capacity. And in that way, I think I could say that we have several who are living and leading a deacon-filled life as their predecessor, Stephen. That they teach the truth of God's Word. A great deal of what they do goes unnoticed and unrecognized but they lead through serving. And as such, I believe that the author of Hebrews, his words ought to apply to them. Now let me go ahead and pre-warn you. Hebrews 13, 17 is not your life verse. It's not one that just makes me feel warm and fuzzy. But it is God's word. Listen to what the Spirit says to all members of a congregation in verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls. We're not talking about governors and presidents. We're talking about local church. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. By the way, if there is any one phrase that keeps me up at night, actually has kept me up at night, it's been that one. That I will give an account for the souls that I pastor. I don't know what that means, but it's here. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So let's take a step back from Hebrews 13, 17. 
Because we here in the American church, we do not jive too much with what we have just read. We don't like what the pastor or deacons are doing, so we move on down the road to another church that better fits our style. We grimace at ecclesiological words like those who rule over you. And you're all like, look, at what's, what's another word for that? Well, I mean, there's got to be a better translation than somebody who rules over me. Now, we foolishly say things like, I'm my own man. I don't need anyone telling me what to do. And Christian, you need authority in your life. You need to. God's Word hasn't changed. The leadership of the local church is who's being referenced in this passage. We have standards and qualifications as to how we ought to lead. We've already read those. But the congregation also has obligations and standards on how they are to follow. And the author of Hebrews says, obediently, (laughs) submissively. And that's not easy. Not at all. But if you read Hebrews 13, 17, and all you see is drudgery and laws and guidelines and do this and don't do that, you are reading it wrong and somebody, some very small person has held authority over you in a wrong way. Look at the last sentence there in verse 17. Leading and following joyfully. That's the goal here. That those who lead, they lead joyfully. And those who follow, they follow joyfully. If it's drudgery and grieving and leading or following, the author says, that would be unprofitable for you. Which is like the overstatement or the understatement of the century. It's the only time that this word is ever used in the New Testament, this unprofitable. It means it would be not worth it. It would not be advantageous. It would be hurtful to you. It would be, one translation puts it, it would be pernicious if you led out of grief or if you followed out of grief. That's strong language. If we're all playing our role with a lot of grief, what's it all for, essentially? It is pointless. If we're just doing stuff because we're told and that's what we've always been told to do, my goodness, what's it all for? But when the bride of Christ works in unison with both love and submission to those who are leading and those who are following, it is a beautiful thing. This week I had Lunch with a man who is much my senior. He's led an amazing ministry in his life. And he said, right after he gave me his personal testimony of how he came to faith in Jesus, he said this quote, I owe everything that I am to the local church. By pure happenstance, somebody just happened to, from Kofor's Chapel, Freel Baptist Church, knock on his door and invite he, his father, and his mother to church one day. And it forever changed his life, affected hundreds, if not thousands, of students at Welch College and the many that he's pastored throughout his ministry. The local church 
I owe everything to it. Because he got to see what the bride of Christ, the local congregation of God's people, working in unison with love and submission, leading and following, all working together. I owe everything that I am to the local church. And I say with my brother, so do I. Honestly, we know, to Christ goes all the glory. and Yes. But His bride has played a huge role in my life. I've been the beneficiary of so many good things because of the leadership and also now the following of those in the local church. And so the author of Hebrews, he concludes his plea for unity and leading and following with a simple request. And you might say that I'm taking it out of context because it seems like he writes it in a more personal note, but I think it is well in keeping here that in verse 18, he says, pray for us. Pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. So, I titled the the sermon, it's real catchy, (laughs) Praise God for Deacons. That's the title, that's the goal. But I also wanted us to close by praying for them. Because it's been too long since we as a congregation in corporate prayer did so. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.